Morning, everyone. Uh, happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, today is a day we want to honor uh, not just uh, the mothers in our church, especially them, but also the ladies of our church. Uh, normally, uh, our, our custom is to have uh, the men of the church stand up in honor of the women. It's a, it's a harder to do that this year, obviously, uh, so you can stay seated in your car. You can maybe put your seat more upright, men. That might help. Uh, but I would love to pray for our, our, our ladies and our women. And um, I want to remind you of what it says uh, in, the, in the law of God, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So there's a connection uh, very clearly to us being blessed uh, to the extent that we are honoring of our parents and, and our moms. So I want to do that right now. Uh, I'd ask you to join with me in prayer and uh, we'll do that together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the way that, um, that the family has been uh, orchestrated and, and created we thank you, God, for, um, for giving us family, family units, Lord, and uh, for the blessing that mothers are in families. Uh, Lord, I pray for all the women of our church. I pray, Lord, for your great blessing upon them. We thank you for them. We thank you for the roles that they play in our lives. Thank you for uh, the ways that they have helped us, many of us, to grow spiritually, grow in godliness. And uh, I want to pray, Lord, for your blessing upon them. I pray uh, especially for moms that are actively moms right now with maybe little ones or, or kids of any age. Would you please bring them wisdom, bring them grace, bring them strength in those difficult hours, in those exhausted times. Help them to know, Lord, that uh, they are doing the, the good work that you've given them to do. And uh, Lord, as they are faithful in that, uh, their children will be blessed. And I want to also pray, uh, Lord, for, for those uh, for whom uh, Mother's Day is just a difficult day. Uh, maybe, maybe the relationship with mom wasn't what it should have been. Uh, maybe mom was taken too early. Uh, maybe, maybe there's uh, some women here who, who would like to be mothers and it, and it just hasn't happened yet or maybe never happened. Lord, I pray in all of these situations uh, that uh, these women would be comforted. Lord, that they would be blessed. Uh, Lord, that in those, uh, in those holes in their hearts or those areas of hurt, Lord, that you would enter into that and you would, through the ministry of your spirit, through the truths of the gospel, that they are deeply loved and that you are with them. Lord, that they would experience healing and grace today. And uh, we do pray for your protection, Lord, upon our families. Uh, we know that the enemy wants to unravel and, and attack our families in so many ways. And, and moms are not immune from that. So God, we, we pray, please, you would protect and bless our families. And Lord, that uh, we would see uh, the fruits of the labors of our moms in years to come as, uh, as the children of this church grow up to be uh, young men and women who know and love the Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as Tim mentioned, <clears throat> we are in Luke 11. Uh, in fact, uh, today is a continuation of the scene from last week. So if you're here with us last week, you know that Jesus was invited to a dinner party, which sounds great, sounds very pleasant, but uh, if you were there, you know that it, it wasn't actually that light and pleasant. In fact, uh, Jesus didn't come to the dinner party to make small talk. He came uh, to call out the Pharisees, that's what he did last week, in terms of the superficiality and hypocritical nature of their faith. Um, he, he proclaimed actually three woes upon the Pharisees. These are spiritual leaders of Israel, uh, but their faith was really hollow. And Jesus, because he loved them, wanted to make sure that they knew it. Uh, if, you, if you can imagine then, uh, this week begins kind of at, um, at that point in the evening where there's a bit of a lull. So think perhaps you've been to a dinner party where there's been 
you know, two people who just start arguing politics or two family members who just start having it out of some, you know, argument and everyone feels a little bit uh, uncomfortable and awkward. And then there's that quiet moment and no one is quite sure what to say. That's where we are. And in that moment, uh, there's a lawyer who is there. Not just Pharisees there, but lawyers. And he decides that the best thing that he could do would be to help Jesus. He figures Jesus doesn't really realize, you know, how offensive he's being and how he's insulting all of us. So in this quiet moment, I'm just going to step in and kind of help him out. And uh, he's going to see that things actually go worse for him. But, but before we get there, here's verse 45. Here's the beginning. Um, it says simply this, One of the lawyers answered him, so answered Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So his assumption is that Jesus didn't mean to insult everyone. And uh, that if Jesus really knew kind of what, how good they were. I mean, these are good people, right? That's what they consider themselves. Upstanding members of society, spiritual people. If Jesus really knew who he was talking to, he, he, I'm sure he would not be talking in this way, thinks the lawyer. Uh, but of course, he's totally wrong. Jesus knows exactly who they are. And he does mean to offend them. Not because he's, not because he's rude or because he lacks social skills, but because he knows that their faith is not as strong and robust as they think it is, and because each one of them has sin within them, deep within them, and the best thing for them is for that sin to be exposed. So, in response, Jesus now proclaims three woes upon the lawyers. Kind of like this guy was poking the bear. You shouldn't poke an angry bear. Jesus was not in a good mood, and he turned now on the lawyers and pronounces three woes. So just like last week, we're going to work through these woes one at a time. And here's the first woe that he proclaims. This is the woe of legalism. And uh, verse 46, he says this, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So that's the first woe, a woe of, of legalism. Now, uh, before we go any further, we should, uh, it's good for us to understand what exactly he means by a lawyer. The lawyer that he's talking about is not the same as a lawyer today. He doesn't practice personal injury law or tax law. Uh, by lawyer, they mean uh, expert in the law of God. So when he's talking to this man, you should think of him like a biblical scholar, like a seminary professor. Uh, lawyers, the ones who were there in, in Israel at the time, they were the experts in the law of God, and it was their job uh, to teach people the law of God and then help them to apply it in their lives. So, for example, uh, the fourth commandment from the law, that's the Ten Commandments, uh, reads this way. Here's Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10. It says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So that was the law of God, and their job was to help people understand it, help people apply it to their lives. But the thing that the lawyers did, and really the Pharisees did as well, is they, they wanted to make sure that people kept the law. That was their goal. They don't want people to break the law. And so what they did is they added a whole bunch of other laws, secondary laws, not exactly from God, but that were designed to protect the law and protect people from breaking it. So when it came to the Sabbath, they looked at that command and they said, the thing that we need to do is to make sure people don't do any work on the Sabbath. Because it says don't do any work. We want to make sure they don't break the law. So they came up with all these other regulations. For example, uh, they would say, look, okay, uh, what does work mean? Well, um, work means carrying anything that is heavier than a fig. That was one of the regulations they added. Uh, if, it, if it's heavier than a fig, that's work. 
and they went further. In fact, if you, if you put the fig down on the table and pick it up again, you've doubled the weight of the fig, so now you're working. So one fig is okay, but more than one, not okay. They had all these kinds of regulations. Carrying something with your hands, that's work. You can't do that. But if you put it on the back of your hand or kind of in your elbow, in your armpit, or even under your chin or in your mouth, all of that was okay. There are all these kind of regulations that they put into place. The result was the Mishnah, which was kind of like the rule book for Judaism. 6,000 additional rules that were all around the, the main rules and designed to help people. But really, really what it was like was like a, the hull of a ship with all sorts of barnacles encrusted upon it. The law of God became encrusted with all of these additional regulations that did not help. In fact, what it meant was that the, the people of God were weighted down by all of these additional laws. Heavier and heavier was the burden. So if you think of the Sabbath, instead of God's people enjoying the rest of the Sabbath, worshiping God through the rest of the Sabbath, they were so concerned about whether or not they were doing any work or not doing any work. They wanted to go over to a friend's house, carry a bowl of grapes. They had to think, can I carry the whole bowl? Can I go at all? Do I have to just carry one grape at a time? They, They were totally misunderstanding the law of God and simply feeling weighted down by all of the additional rules that were put upon them. This is the essence of legalism. Legalism is is thinking that keeping the law itself will lead to the blessing of God. But in fact, what it led to and what it always leads to is feeling exhausted, uh, feeling confused. And that was Jesus' initial criticism. The other criticism, if you notice, what he says is you, you heap heavy burdens on the people and you don't touch them yourself. So what he means by that is because the lawyers were the ones writing all these additional laws, they knew all the loopholes. They knew the ways around it. They knew the right way to carry things, all that. So let me give you an example from modern day, modern day times. Uh, If you go to Manhattan, New York, and uh, you're walking along the street, if you look up uh, and you look very carefully uh, on certain streets, you will see a very thin, translucent wire. And this wire goes almost all the way around Manhattan. 18 miles, continuous wire. This wire is called an Eruv, E-R-U-V. And it was placed there by the Orthodox Jewish community in New York. And it's a symbolic boundary. Uh, one of the Sabbath laws is that you can't carry anything in public. So what this, what this wire does is it effectively makes all of the public spaces within that wire a private space. Like someone's home. So that means that all of the people in the Jewish community can carry things, conduct their lives uh, like normal on the Sabbath and not worry about breaking the Sabbath law. Which sounds great if you live in Manhattan, but what about if you live in Queens or the Bronx? Then you're still under this heavy weight of, of the law. And that's, that's kind of the way it was back in the time of Jesus. The lawyers and the Pharisees, they knew all the ways around the laws. And, and they wouldn't share that with other people. In fact, for the most part, they would... Uh, condemn the people who were not able to follow the law perfectly. So they would point out areas where they weren't following the law and that meant that for most of the people who didn't have the same knowledge of the law, they walked around feeling just very heavy. That God was always displeased with them, that they could never follow the law properly. And so Jesus is saying to the lawyers, look, your faith is woeful. It's a woeful faith because you don't have any grace You don't have any compassion for the people that you're supposed to be leading. You're supposed to be helping. You're misrepresenting the law. And most importantly, you're totally misrepresenting the heart of God for his people. This is what legalism does. It it always 
distorts and misrepresents the, the true nature of faith in God and, and his heart for his people. Now that situation uh, is in many ways very removed from us. I mean, thousands of years ago, different culture, but there's still some important things that we need to take note of because, because legalism is not far removed from us. Legalism is still something that we struggle with. Um, not in the sense that there's like a whole list of thousands of rules that are governing our lives, but in the sense that I think even as Christians today, we often have the sense that um, our relationship with God depends on the good that we do or the bad that we do, how well we can keep, keep the rules. Um, and that's a distortion of God's heart. That's a distortion of the gospel. So let me give you just an example of the difference between uh, living under legalism and living under the gospel. So if you can imagine two homes, a legalistic home is one where there would be a lot of emphasis on the rules, obviously. Uh, not just God's law, but also probably a lot of rules in the home. There's probably a lot of lists, a lot of check marks, a lot of X's when there's, when there's someone who hasn't followed the rules. Uh, being in a legalistic home means that the children generally will feel weighted down by the expectations of, of the parents. And probably the reason the parents are conducting their family this way is because they have the sense that rule following uh, gives you a, a righteous identity. That you're a good person if you can learn to follow the rules. That there's some, there's some truth in that. But there's such an extreme emphasis on the rules in these homes that the result, usually in the kids, is one of two things. Either they become good little rule followers. Um, they become self-righteous. They, they learn how to, you know, please their parents and please the people around them. And they think, look, if I can just do all of these good things, then my parents are pleased with me. God is pleased with me. The other possibility is that they become totally rebellious. That they decide, look, I'm never going to be able to follow these rules. I, I can't do it. I'm always uh, doing the wrong thing. Uh, my parents are always displeased. I'm always under these severe, harsh consequences. So you know what? Forget it. As soon as I get old enough, I'm just always going to push back. I'm going to reject my parents' rules, reject the rules of God. And the thing is, you might think the first option is a good option, but it's actually not. Because in both cases, neither neither child is actually close to the Lord. In the one case, they think that they, uh, basis on, on the basis of their works, they can get close to God. That's not true. In the second case, they've just completely rejected everything that God wants for them. Legalism never actually ends with us drawing near to the Lord. We're always farther and farther away. That's why Jesus is pronouncing woes upon the lawyers because the way they're whole orchestrating everything isn't leading people closer. A gospel home, though, by contrast, is one, hear me, it's not without rules. In a, in a gospel, well-disciplined home, there are rules, there are standards. But the thing that's added to the consequences when we break the rules is a whole lot of grace, a whole lot of compassion, a whole lot of forgiveness, because that's what the parents know to be true of God. They've received forgiveness from God, and so they extend that forgiveness. What they really want for their children to know is the forgiveness and the grace of God. So every rule-breaking is an opportunity to say, look, look, there are rules here for a reason. We want for you to, to grow in good character and to do what is right, but not because it earns anything between you and God, but because Jesus has forgiven you, he's redeemed you, now you have the opportunity to live a life that honors him, to be obedient because your heart has already been changed. You've already received all the righteousness that you need. 
And the only way that this is possible to be separated from the, the legalism of the rules is because of the gospel. I want to read to you Romans 8. This is where we see how we're, we're freed from the law. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we are set free because of the work of Jesus. He fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. He paid the price for our breaking of the law. And now we don't have to fulfill the law to earn anything. It's all been given to us. This, this is the thing that was missing for the lawyers and for the Pharisees. This gracious, merciful, loving heart of God the people at the time had no sense of it because they were always pointing people to, to the rules, to the regulations. So listen, the, the challenge of this is that there are lots of us, there's lots of us that might know the gospel, but frankly, uh, rules, rules feel so comfortable, don't they? I mean, if you're someone who's a rule follower, it's like a warm blanket. You just love to do what is right. You love to see the approving words and looks of others. You think that as you live this kind of a rule-following life that you're, you're experiencing freedom and probably as you're pointing other people in that direction, you think that you're helping them as well. But the truth of the matter, if you're really honest, is that probably you feel exhausted a lot of the time. And there's still a weight on your soul because if you can't follow the rules, which we really can't do it perfectly, there's always this, this unsettledness, this lack of peace. And we're passing this on to the people around us. We're missing the heart of the gospel. This is, this is the call of Jesus in the lives of these, these men, these teachers of the word. And it's the call for us. Now hear me, this doesn't mean we stop talking about sin. This doesn't mean that we have low standards for the people in our lives or for ourselves. But what it means is that we have a heart to lift the burdens of the people around us. That we're not trying to place more weight on them. We're trying to lift it up. We're trying to say, look, trust Jesus. Love Jesus. He did it all for us. You can breathe. You can fail. And it doesn't affect your character. Doesn't affect your identity. Doesn't affect your relationship with the Lord. You can fail and yet trust Jesus fully. And know that he still loves you. That's the, that's the opposite of legalism. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, you lawyers, you're, you're ruining everyone's faith. You're making it so hard for them to see God for who he truly is. So that's the first woe. The one of legalism. Secondly, the woe of rebellion. Now this woe takes Jesus a little bit longer to explain. So here's what he says. Verse 47, he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Um, the lawyers at the time actually were building tombs. They would build, uh, think of it like monuments, like the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, they were building monuments to honor the prophets of the past. And they were pretty pleased with themselves. They thought, this is a good thing. We're honoring these great prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah. But Jesus looked at what they were doing and he saw it totally differently. So here's how he explains it. Here's verse 48. He says, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, God sent prophets all through the Old Testament. And they came with the word of God, 
with instructions from God to his people. But the people did not receive the words from the prophets very well. In fact, for the most part, it was, uh, their reaction was rebellion. And many times it was violent rebellion. So if you think about, he, he says, Abel to Zechariah as like the sort of first and end prophets. And if we think about some of the things that happened to those prophets, it, it, it was very violent. So for example, Abel, we know, was killed by his brother Cain, even though he was fulfilling the will of God. Elijah was hunted uh, by the king and queen of Israel. Uh, Jeremiah was thrown into a well, left for dead. Zechariah was stoned to death for calling out sin. See, the lawyers thought to themselves, we're honoring these prophets by building these monuments. But what Jesus says is you are actually consenting to the deeds of your fathers. What he's saying is, even though you're doing this amazing thing out here in your hearts, you're just as rebellious. So you are complicit in the murderous rebellion of your forefathers. He's saying it's really, it's really an issue of the heart. You can't just build a statue and, and pretend that everything is great. You need to look inside yourself. In fact, look at verse 50. Verse 50, he says this, The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. So how is it that all of, all of the prophets, all the prophets who were killed, how can this generation be responsible for all of them? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the Bible says that all of the prophets, they actually pointed forward to Jesus. And it says very clearly that Jesus is the greatest of prophets. And the truth of the matter is that this generation, they were going to be responsible for the death of Jesus. And when we look at the, the time of the crucifixion, kind of the events leading up to the cru crucifixion, we actually see this spelled out very clearly. So I'm going to read to you. Um, this is uh, when Jesus has just finished being with Pilate. Pilate is trying to find a way to not crucify Jesus, but everyone's saying crucify him. And so here's what happens. Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered. So the people also that were standing in front of Jesus, they answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So the woe of the lawyers is that they were still filled with the murderous rebellion against the word of God. It's a murderous rebellion in their hearts that would result in the crucifixion of the greatest prophet of God. And so Jesus is saying, look, you may build monuments, but that, the, the real issue is in your heart. That rebellion has not changed. So what's in here for us? We're not building statues. Um, we're not part of that generation. Well, here's the question I think we should be asking. Are we genuinely honoring God's word? Or do we have a heart of rebellion towards it? Because that's really, that's really what Jesus is talking about. I mean, the, the lawyers were saying, look at all the good things we're doing, which we tend to do. We tend to have very clear in our mind all the righteous, good, godly things that we're doing. And it's so hard for us to see the elements of rebellion in our hearts. And that's what Jesus is really focusing on. He's saying, saying, look, the real test in terms of whether you're honoring the word of God is if you are submissive to it. Like, are you allowing the word of God to be the authority in your life? Are you conforming yourself to what God says is best, what God says is true? And, and the reality is it's, it's difficult for us to see this. By that, I mean, there are areas of our life that we are very happy not to examine. 
And there's areas, um, you know, ways of thought, ways of our heart that are rebellious and yet we, we can't see it. We have a blind spot around it. So to, to receive this word for us today and not be rebellious against it, a couple things I think we need to do. We, we need to be in conversation with the people in our lives to say, look, and I, I really want um, to be submissive to the word. Do you see anything in my life? I mean, you know me, you know the word. If there's someone like that in your life, um, is there something I can't see? Would you be kind enough to, to point it out to me? And if you're receiving that request, be gentle, right? Don't hammer and say, oh, I got a list, man. I've been waiting for this. Let me just tell you a few things that I've got to tell you. Be gentle, but receive that. The other thing, the really important thing, we just need to have it as a habit is to be, if we're to ha- be submissive to the word of God, first of all, we need to be in it. We need to be opening it, reading it regularly. But as we do it, we should be praying, Lord, would you help me to see where I'm not walking in step with your word? Lord, where am I rebellious? A great place to go for this is Colossians 3. Gives a list of practical things. Here's what you should put on in Christ. Here's what you should put off. Really practical things like anger, like malice, like like, um, unwholesome talk that comes out of our mouth. All sorts of practical things that we could easily pass over. And yet when we see it in the word, if we have a heart to really honor God and be obedient, be submissive, and we ask the spirit of God, reveal it to me, then we have a chance to confess to repent and to actually change our lives. Because that's, that's what was missing from the lawyers. They had all this good stuff over here, but they weren't really interested in confession and to submit to God himself. That's the second woe. The third is hindering spiritual life. Hindering spiritual life. One verse, Jesus says this, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. See, the tragic ironies of the lawyers and the Pharisees is they were in the very best position to be able to help people spiritually, to be able to help people to enter the kingdom of God, and yet they actually made it harder for them. That's what Jesus is saying. You you, you actually made it harder for people to enter. I mean, they, they knew the whole Old Testament. They knew everything about the teachings of the Messiah. They knew the character of God backwards and forwards, all the Psalms. They knew all of that, and yet they had taken away the key. The key, the key was the gracious and forgiving nature of God. They, they had like misplaced it, like they misplaced a key. Instead, in all the ways that they were leading the people, they were just heaping heavier and heavier burdens, more laws, more regulations, giving people the impression that that's who God is, and it wasn't at all. So the picture that Jesus gives is of like a grand doorway into the kingdom of heaven. And all of God's people are out in this wasteland. They're cold, they're tired, they're hungry, they want rest, they want comfort, and they're wanting to get in. And at the front of the line, right by the door, are the, are the lawyers. And they're, and they're doing this. Like, where's, where's the key? Where's the... They don't know the way in anymore. They've forgotten the key that God has given them, that God is gracious and forgiving and merciful. Instead, they're pointing people away from the, from the door itself. They're saying, you got to do more. You got you to be better at following God's law. You got to be more righteous. They're pointing people away from the door of life. Can you see why Jesus was so angry at this dinner party? Why he was so upset? I mean, just think if you had the key of life in your hand physically, like if you had an antidote to someone who has been bitten by a poisonous snake or you had some, something that would help someone and you didn't give it to them, you, you misplaced it, I mean, you, you would be prosecuted. You had, you had life to give and you didn't give it. 
it's so much more grievous when we're talking about eternal life. Because that's what Jesus is saying. Because, because of your own corruption, because of your own hypocrisy, you, you've taken away the key that people need to enter the kingdom of God. You've misrepresented the heart of God. You've made it harder and harder for people. You've blocked the door yourself. That's what, that's what Jesus says. You're like trying to get in. You can't get in and no one else can get in behind you. It's a, it's a grievous, tragic state of affairs for the people of God at the time. So again, let's ask ourselves, what is there in this for us? Are there some ways in which we, if you're a follower of Christ today, we might be blocking the door to the kingdom of heaven from the people in our lives? I'd say there's probably a lot of ways that we could potentially do that, but I want to highlight two. Uh, two ways that we could potentially block the door of spiritual life to the people around us. Here's the first way. We will block the door to spiritual life if we fail to share the gospel simply and clearly. I've done a lot of interviews with, with people um, in the church for different positions, like volunteer positions, ministry positions. And I always, usually in that interview, ask someone to share the gospel with me. Say, so just imagine I'm someone in your life and I actually want to know, what do you believe? Why, why do you go to church? Like, what's up with that? And it's surprising how many people really struggle to articulate their faith. Just aren't used to it. It's not that they don't believe it. They just aren't used to actually saying the words. Listen, if you're a Christian and you cannot articulate the gospel in under a minute, clearly, fully, there's a very good chance you're going to hinder someone's spiritual life because you are not going to be able to explain to them the thing that they need to know. As Christians, we need to be able to have some way that we are familiar with explaining who God is, our need for him and what he's done. So listen, really simple, three words, God saved sinners. That's the gospel. Now, from that, we ask questions. Well, who is God? Well, let me tell you who God is. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one who made us. What does it mean, sinner? Well, let me, let me explain that. Sinner is that we went against God. We rejected him. We under consequence from him because he's a just God. What, saved, how, how did he save us? Well, let me tell you. Jesus is the one who saved us. God sent his only son to live the life we couldn't live. He was perfectly God and perfectly man at the same time. He went to the cross. That's what Easter is all about. And then he didn't stay dead. He, he took the penalty for sin and he rose again. That's, that's the hope of the gospel. God saved sinners. I was a sinner. You are a sinner. And yet we have the hope of life. If we're able to share clearly and if we're willing to share clearly, then instead of blocking the door, we, we get out of the way and we point people to the, to the grace of God. That's one way that, that if we're not able, we're not willing, we may, we may block people's path. The second way the second way is that we will block people into the kingdom of God if we fail to live the gospel. That example I gave of a legalistic household, I'd say that's an example of, of parents who are, in a sense, blocking the way of their children uh, to the kingdom of God. Because uh, in that kind of a home, kids will hear uh, about the gospel, they'll hear about Jesus, that they'll, they'll hear that it's important to be a Christian and yet what they're seeing is not a soft-hearted, gracious, compassionate uh, heart, but usually a hard heart. Someone who's unforgiving. Uh, maybe a marriage that's, that's very acrimonious, very difficult, and the kids will think to themselves, look, I, my parents are saying that this is important, but I, it doesn't look very good. I mean, I don't see any real heart change. It's not very appealing. Why, why would I want that? 
It's the same for um, Christian neighbors that are not hospitable, uh, Christian bosses that are not generous. I mean, in any way that we aren't actually living the thing that we are saying we believe in, it makes it harder for people to really see that as compelling and wonderful and beautiful as it really is. So we have opportunities not to open the door ourselves. It's the spirit of God that opens the door in the hearts of people to have faith, to trust in Jesus. But we have the opportunity to, to get out of the way and to point and say, look, what you really need is, is Jesus. Look what he's done in me. Look what he can do in you. All Christians should be quick to admit wrong, quick to forgive. We should reflect the love and grace of God. Otherwise, we hinder people from spiritual life. And here's our last question. How did the dinner party end? How did it end? I mean, it, it didn't start off that great. Uh, in the middle, it was kind of rocky. Uh, would you be surprised to find out that at the end, it was still pretty tense? Here's our last two verses. Uh, verse 53, as he, so as Jesus went away from there, the party's over, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. So when Jesus went away, everyone was offended. They were just waiting for the time when they can get back at Jesus. And listen, this was a hard word from Jesus to them. He confronted them. He exposed their sin. But it was a loving word from Jesus. He did it because he didn't want for them to remain lost. He wanted that for them to see that they're missing. They're missing these elements. They, they'd misplaced them. They'd forgotten them. The grace and love of God is for them as well. So here's the thing for us. We also, when we come to the word, like a hard word like this perhaps, it's very possible for us to go away feeling more hard-hearted than softened, like offended, like I didn't want to hear that. That wasn't what I came for. It's Mother's Day. I expected a, a light and fluffy sermon where I could go away feeling good about myself. And now we talked a lot about sin. I'm supposed to examine my heart. I, I'm not interested. It's the wrong response to a hard word from the Lord. God speaks in very pointed, critical ways at times because he loves us deeply. Because he doesn't want for us to just continue on with an empty or hollow faith. So as a point of contrast, uh, let me point you to a man uh, who did have a very soft heart, a repentant heart, when he beheld the glory of God. I'm, I'm speaking about Isaiah. If you remember in Isaiah, there's this amazing time where he, he gets a vision of the throne room of God. And it's just, it's bright, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's just the, the splendor, the purity, the goodness of God. And in that moment, Isaiah realizes his own sin. But he doesn't wait for God to proclaim a woe or a word of judgment upon him. He proclaims it upon himself. Here's Isaiah 6.5. He says this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So what we see in Isaiah is that the answer to all of these woes that Jesus is proclaiming upon the Pharisees, upon the lawyers, and potentially upon us, is to admit them, is to admit them for ourselves. Yes, there are aspects of my character and my faith that are woeful. Yes, I'm unable to, to keep the law perfectly. Yes, I need Jesus. Yes, Lord, please forgive me. Please be merciful to me. And in that moment, we are drawn into the presence of God, not because of our works, 
not because we're so great, not because we're pretending to be righteous, but because we receive the righteous grace of God. That's what it means to have a genuine faith. That's what Jesus ultimately wanted for even these these corrupt leaders. And that's the opportunity we have every moment of every day to freely admit wrong, freely receive the grace of God, and then to go and live in a way that genuinely honors Jesus, not because we need to earn anything, but because we're free to live as we please and it pleases us to honor him. So let me pray to that end for us uh, as we close. Lord Jesus, there are many times when you, you speak in very pointed ways to your people, especially for those who are in leadership positions, especially for those who are in positions of influence. Um, Lord, I, I pray I pray that this word um, to us would, would be very fruitful in our hearts. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not ignore the call to examine ourselves, that we would not rely upon the, the good things that we are doing. I pray instead, Lord, that we would receive the proclamation of woe upon our lives, that it is true, apart from you, on our own, we, we are woeful in our faith. We, we, are not, we are not worthy of your grace and your mercy. We we can't fulfill the law perfectly. And Lord, I pray that would drive us to you. Help us, Lord, to truly enjoy your grace and forgiveness. And I pray from that, uh, we would just extend that grace and forgiveness to others. Please help those of us who are in positions of influence to, to lift the gospel up clearly, for people to see in us the difference that you make. Hearts that are soft, hearts that are humble, hearts that are ready to forgive, ready to ask for forgiveness. And I pray in all of that, Lord Jesus, you would be magnified, you would be glorified and that many people would find the door of life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.